Welcome to Power Up, a podcast show hosted by Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio that brings life to some of the stories on Power Electronics technologies and products featured on PowerElectronicsNews.com and through other as Pencore Media publications. In this show, you'll hear both engineers and executives discuss news, challenges, and opportunities for power electronics in markets such as automotive, industrial, and consumer. Here is your host, Editor-in-Chief of PowerElectronicsNews.com and EEWeb.com, Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Power Up. Today we will talk about fusion energy. What's next? Current renewable technologies cannot fulfill the increasing global energy needs in the longer term. But rigorous research and development can solve this problem and bring in the next energy revolution. Fusion energy and further advancements in renewable energy sources and energy storage technologies could help accelerate this research and development. The anticipated global energy goals cannot be met with current clean technology. Perhaps the only clean, abundant energy source that can meet the anticipated demand gap is fusion. But for us to succeed, a lot of R&D is required. In this podcast with Todd Didmeyer, co-founder of Focus Energy, we will discover the current situation and the next challenges for fusion energy. Todd serves as the company's CTO, as well as the director of the Center for High Energy Density Science and a professor of physics at the University of Texas at Austin, where he specializes in experimental studies of intense ultrafast laser interactions with plasmas, atoms, and clusters. There are two approaches to fusion, magnetic and inertial confinement, with different variations of each. Focused energy's approach is laser-driven inertial confinement. But let's talk with Todd. Hi, Todd. How are you? Ah, good morning, Mauricio. I'm great. It's great to, great to talk with you again. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, where are you located? Well, I'm, right now I'm in the Isle of Skye in Scotland. I'm taking a little bit of a vacation, but um, still happy to have a, a, a chance this morning to, to chat with you. Good, thank you. So, before uh, going into uh, details about the topic, so today we will talk about uh, fusion energy. So, our community would like to get uh, to know you a bit uh, more. Can you tell us uh, a bit about your backstory? Tell us more about you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, so so I'm an experimental physicist. Um, I've worked my entire career with high-power lasers and studying uh, how those lasers interact with plasmas, um, how they heat plasmas, how the how the light interacts with those plasmas, and in some of those experiments that I do, how the how that laser light can be used to spark fusion. Um, I also have had a strong interest in the technology itself, the laser technology, and we'll, we'll come to that. But anyway, I started my career. Uh, in graduate school out at the University of California at Davis, I did my research at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And Livermore is the, the U.S.'s biggest high-power laser lab. And when I went out there, I realized what, you know, what could possibly be cooler than high-power lasers. And I say this to this day, and I tell my students the same thing. So I did my Ph.D. thesis there learning uh, about uh, high-peak power lasers. And we'll talk a little bit about that technology here in, in a bit. Um, 
Um, but when I finished my PhD thesis, I went off to Imperial College in London, did more work with high-power lasers, then went back to Lawrence Livermore. And while I was at Livermore in the late 90s, I had the opportunity to work with what it was at the time, the highest power laser in the world, the first petawatt laser. And many of the results that took place at that time lead to the technology that we're using to harness fusion that we'll talk about. Uh, while I was at Livermore, I also had another interesting opportunity. I met a very bright young German scientist named Marcus Roth. Uh, Marcus and I became lifelong colleagues and friends, uh, and, and we ended up founding this company, Focused Energy, together. While Marcus was at Livermore with me, he did some pioneering experiments that led to results that are fundamental to the, to the fusion approach that we're pursuing, and we'll talk about that. Anyway, after I left Livermore, I went to the University of Texas to become a professor. There I built a laser called the Texas Petawatt Laser, which for some years was the highest power laser in the world. Continued to do laser plasma experiments, uh, built a, a center at the Center for Energy Density Science. Continued to work with Marcus. Marcus would come over and do experiments. And then uh, uh, some years ago, I founded a, a company called National Energetics, where we were working to commercialize the high-power lasers that we use for research um, at the University of Texas. Um, but to bring the bring this uh, story, this part of the story to a close, it turned one one day a couple of years ago, just before COVID, Marcus Ross shows up at my house and says, "Todd, <clears throat> what do you think about joining a fusion startup company?" And I said, "That is the craziest idea I've ever heard. Tell me more." Uh, and I was fascinated by what Marcus told me, and so I uh, took leave from the university, packed our my bags, and we went to we went to Germany. Uh, worked with a fusion startup in Munich for six months and then went up to Darmstadt with Barkus and started Focus Energy. And that brings us to where we're at now. Yeah. And we will see in a bit focused energy. Before that, so let's start with the first one. What's fusion energy? So there are a few approaches to, 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 to fusion. What are these uh, approaches? Maybe also, if you can, mention some companies that are working in this, uh, in this field with advantages, uh, disadvantages, uh, for sure. So fusion energy has uh, always seem, seemed to be great in theory, uh, in particular for the physicists, but difficult to accomplish in practice. So what makes this project more practical and achievable? Well, yeah, so fusion, as most of you listening probably know, is, is the energy source that powers the visible universe. The sun and the stars are driven by fusion. And the essence of fusion is when two light elements come together and stick together. Now, this is a difficult process because light elements are charged and they repel each other and opposites attract and likes repel. But if you can make a plasma, this means a gas that's ionized where the electrons are free of the atoms, hot enough, the energy of those particles can sometimes overcome that repulsion and stick together. And that's what happens in the sun. In fact, it's mostly just hydrogen atoms, protons that are sticking together and fusing and through a series of reactions produce helium. Now, it turns out with light elements, as you go up the periodic table, when you fuse two elements together, the resulting element is ever so slightly lighter than the initial constituents. And the difference in mass is converted to energy by Einstein's famous formula, equal mc squared. So that's how fusion produces energy. Now, the sun has a huge amount of gravitational force to hold this ball of plasma together. So we can say that the sun is a basically a gravitationally confined fusion reactor. Um, we don't have that advantage here on Earth if we're going to harness this on Earth. So we have to take a couple of different, uh, different approaches 
to to harness fusion for energy production. Now, the sun uses protons. Most mainstream uh, fusion approaches um, essentially uh, use a little bit easier set of uh, constituents or fuel, if you will, to fuse. Typically, we use two isotopes of hydrogen, which means a proton with additional neutrons. With one additional neutron, it's deuterium. Turns out a very small fraction of the hydrogen in water is deuterium. So we can harvest deuterium literally from seawater. The tritium is a little harder to come by. That's two neutrons. But we can make tritium, it turns out, if we have a neutron and we slam it into a lithium atom. And lithium, we can we can uh, mine. So essentially, if we can get fusion to work with deuterium and tritium, this it works much more uh, at a much lower temperature than protons, and we can make the fuel very simply. So the mainstream approaches to, to fusion are, are are fusing deuterium and tritium. When those two fuse, they produce two particles: a helium atom or a helium nucleus and a neutron. Now these are both good things for us, and all the approaches to fusion usually harness these in some way or the other. The, the helium atom is charged. And it bangs into other neighboring ions and heats them up and causes additional fusion reactions to occur. So if we can produce conditions where we hold those so-called alpha particles in, we can get this fusion plasma to burn. And that's part of the holy grail of fusion is to get a burning plasma or ignition, if you will. The other particle is a neutron. That neutron flies out. It's neutrally charged. And it does two things. We get a double whammy with the neutron. First of all, it carries energy and therefore heats up material, which we can then use to make steam and harness for electrical energy. But the neutron can also slam into a lithium atom and produce that tritium that we need. Now, there's a couple of main approaches to making this work. Two of them quite different, although they have some commonalities. But but one, probably the most common approach, is to make a plasma that's low density, about a thousandth of a percent of atmospheric density, and hold that plasma in with magnets. And there are a couple of different configurations. Probably the most common is to make the magnets in the shape of a donut, a so-called tokamak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably the leading company, the private company <clears throat> in fusion, uh, is pursuing this approach. Commonwealth Fusion in Massachusetts is a really uh, very uh, a class act with a lot of really bright physicists. And they're pursuing this so-called magnetic confinement fusion using tokamaks. There are other configurations. So, for example, there's a company on, on California called TAE that has a different configuration. Um, but this has um, this approach has seen a lot of advances in recent years. And in fact, a uh, world record was set uh, at a tokamak in, in England some years back where they produced about 67 percent of the energy out by fusion as energy that went in. Almost what we call break even tantalizingly close. And Commonwealth Fusion uh, has some new technology that they're developing to, to miniaturize tokamaks is very, very interesting and exciting. Now, the other approach is something quite different. It's something that's been pursued largely at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and that's, of course, where I and Marcus grew up. So this approach is so-called inertial confinement fusion. In other words, make plasma conditions at very high density and high temperature and create conditions such that that, that alpha heating and burn can happen so quickly that the plasma burns up before it can explode. And essentially, we say the plasma is confined by its own inertia, so-called inertial confinement, or in the, in the community, we typically call this for the, from the standpoint of energy production, inertial fusion energy, or IFE. So you'll hear the term IFE a lot in the chatter about fusion. Now, <clears throat> there are a few approaches to IFE. The approach that we're pursuing and the approach that Livermore has pursued, although with a slightly different flavor, is to use large lasers to start with a pellet of that deuterium and tritium I told you about, 
and irradiate the surface of this pellet. Now, this makes this surface hot. It expands and acts like a rocket engine. And now you have a bunch of rocket engines imploding the remaining DT fuel. Now, if you get the conditions right, you can get that fuel hot enough and dense enough. And here, dense enough means um, hundreds of grams per cc, so hundreds of times solid density. So way much, much different density regime than magnetic confinement. And get that fusion fuel to burn. Now, there are subflavors with this approach. I won't go into all of them. I'll just mention a couple. <clears throat> so Lawrence Livermore, uh, using their big national ignition facility, has um, set uh, a world record back in August in which they used uh, lasers to drive the inside of a can that made x-rays and imploded the shell, and they produced a gain of 0.7. They got 1.3 megajoules of laser, excuse me, of fusion energy out with 1.9 megajoules of energy in. This result has electrified the community. This shows that we are tantalizingly close to a gain above one, which is what we need for energy production. The the other approach is one where you uh, shoot the lasers directly onto the pellet. And this is so-called direct drive, and this is the approach that we're pursuing. Yeah. Indeed, uh, you so your approach, focused energies approach, I mean your company, is laser driving, driven inertial confinement. Uh, so in terms of your uh, company, your approach, uh, what are the current limitations now in technology? Uh, how could this research prove crucial in revolutionizing its uh, its future? But in, um, just uh, in terms of fusion, when we, will we know if fusion is going to work? That, yes, you did. I mean. Okay, good question. But before we come to that, so let's talk yeah. about our approach. So. Yes. So the, so the main approach that Livermore and uh, the big laboratory at the University of Rochester um, uh, pursue is, is to implode this capsule with these lasers uh, mm-hmm. and to get to heat up by the actual compression. So it works kind of like a diesel engine works. You shoot fuel into the, into the cylinder and you compress it with the piston and you get it to combust. While Marcus and I were at Livermore, Marcus did some pioneering experiments with a whole group of, liver, of people at Livermore, um, and where they showed that with these petawatt lasers, you can accelerate protons to very high energies. Now, these lasers are very short in time duration. We make these lasers using a technology called chirp pulse amplification, which was actually the technology that led to the, the 2018 Nobel Prize in physics for Gerard Moreau and Donna Strickland. And with this, with this uh, technology, it's now possible to produce laser pulses that are as short as a picosecond, 10 to the minus 12 seconds, or even shorter. That means their intensity, their energy per time, because the time is so short, is very high. And what Marcus and collaborators found at Livermore was that if you focus one of these petawatt lasers onto a foil, they accelerate electrons to very high energy, and then the electrons pull the protons behind them, and they get a beam, a nice directed gun of protons. And so the idea that Marcus pioneered was to say, look, let's take that beam of protons and use it as a spark plug to initiate the ignition in this compressed fusion fuel. So this has pluses and minuses over the so-called typical hotspot ignition that Livermore uh, uh, pursues. It does make the compression easier. We don't have to compress as fast and as hard, and we don't have to be as symmetric. Now, on the other hand, we've had this added complication of having to produce the protons, uh, but we believe that the experiments that have been done show that, that the number of protons we can get to ignite fuel mm-hmm. is high enough. 
And so one of the challenges you ask, you know, what are the you know limitations and the technologies and what are, what's going to be crucial? It's going to be putting together in one machine a laser large enough to compress the fuel, much like the National Ignition Facility at Livermore, combined with these petawatt lasers to produce the proton spark plug to ignite this. This approach is called proton fast ignition, and this is the approach that we're pursuing at Focus Energy. We believe that this is the most likely approach to get us to high gain. High gain means mm-hmm. we need to get 100 times more fusion energy out than laser energy we put in. That's just purely so mm-hmm. that we don't suck up all the energy by sucking electricity into our laser. Now, that's a physics challenge. We, because of the NIF result, we think we've made huge progress toward that. Uh, our company's principal goal is to build by the end of a decade the laser that I just described, which is the laser that both compresses and produces the petawatt beams to produce pro- the protons. In our case, the laser will be with the nanosecond beams to compress something like 400 kilojoules with green light. And then the big daddy is 150 kilojoules of picosecond pulses. Now, where the technology is at now, we can now produce something like two kilojoules of picosecond pulses in a single beam. And so part of the technology challenge is going to be building multiple beams together in an affordable way to be able to produce the proton beam that we need for ignition. Um, but we we think that there's enough physics that has been done to show we can get there. We think we can get there by the end of the decade. And laser technology, some of which I've developed in Austin with my company, National Energetics, exists to build such a laser with a high enough rep rate that we can make the progress in the time scale that's going to be relevant for energy production and to help solve climate change. Now, the last question you asked, asked was, um, when will we know is fusion going to work? And my, yeah. my answer, my flippant answer to that is, well, we already know fusion works. I mean, we have now enough physics results that show fusion works, the NIF result, the JET results in Britain. So I would, I would change this question to make it a little, a little bit more subtle is, when will we know whether we can get a high enough gain with mm-hmm. the fusion approaches that we know have been shown to work to be viable for energy production. And that's a more subtle and interesting question, and that's going to require the development of, of these big machines, such as the tokamak that Commonwealth is building, such as the laser that we're that we're planning to build, to to see whether we can get high enough gain to make fusion work for energy. So your main research, in a way, uh, focuses on uh, on lasers and uh, uh, there are uh, implications in uh, in other fields such as uh, optics uh, telecommunication uh, etc i mean what are these uh, uh, implications in other infrastructure markets yeah that's, that's a great question so uh you know lasers have, have been shown to have applications everywhere right that's what i love about lasers they're everywhere yeah, from for sure. market scanners to making fusion work So part of making fusion work with inertial fusion energy is we have to build high-energy lasers, but we need to make them compact, we need to make them affordable, we need to make them manufacturable, and we need to make them reparated. An ultimate fusion power plant uh, operating on this approach would have to run at something like 10 hertz. So we're basically making little fusion explosions, but also means we need a laser that fires at that rep rate. Now... If we have such a laser, a compact laser that's manufacturable, one very interesting possible spinoff that Marcus and I and others have been working on for some years is to use these lasers 
to produce unique sources of radiation, meaning uh, X-ray photons, protons, electrons, neutrons, or even muons. And these radiation sources can be used in all kinds of technological applications. So we'll give you a couple of examples. If we have one of these rep-rated lasers firing into targets like Marcus has, has pioneered, we can produce a large number of neutrons. And neutrons are used, typically people go to a, a, a small research reactor and take their source to study materials or to look for defects in, in cracks or turbine blades. For example, the U.S. Air Force operated a reactor for some time to look for cracks in aircraft parts. Uh, in that case, they had to, you know, bring the mountain to the, you know, to the, to the source. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a mobile source where we could bring the source to the mountain, um, bring the source to the airplane and look for cracks and defects? Um, one of the things that neutrons can look for is moisture in uh, structural components and bridges. And can we look to see if there's corrosion in bridges and determine whether the bridge needs to be rebuilt or torn apart? So this is, a, this is actually a pressing problem, and a neutron source is mobile just really doesn't exist. The other interesting application that I'm particularly excited about is that with these lasers, you can produce high-energy electrons. I don't know if you remember I mentioned that the first step to producing the protons was to produce a bunch of high-energy electrons by these intense lasers. Those electrons can also be used, and you can shine them into something that's high on the periodic table, like tantalum or gold, <clears throat> and produce beams of muons. So muons are actually cosmic rays. We get bombarded by muons uh, all the time. One, one goes through my hand every second. Muons are essentially heavy, they're like heavy electrons, and they go through a lot of material. And so people have talked about using muons to look for tunnels underground, to study the insides of pyramids, or to use muons to look for high-Z materials like plutonium that the bad guys might want to move around. And so one possible application would be to build a compact source of muons using these lasers that would be transportable that could be used to radiograph components coming into a port in the nice. U.S., mm -hmm. we have many problems and, like, you know, and concerns about this, to look for illicit materials and essentially protect, uh, you know, protect ports and, and commerce. So my last one, uh, my last comment, my last uh, consideration for, for fusion in terms of uh, investment. So innovations in fusion mean that uh, it could be soon be used as a carbon-free source of energy to decarbonize the electrical grid. We need uh, to have a lot of investments. Investments are needed to support fusion technology on its path to commercialization. So are there enough investors interested in this uh, technology to keep research moving forward? Or, I mean, will government support be needed? What do you think? What are the major challenges that stand in the way of industrial and commercial fusion? Well, so one of the things that's been exciting for me, and, I, and, and I'm somebody as an academic for 20 years, I did my research funded on, on you know, government, government grants and funds, and I, you know, I understand the challenges of, of, of capturing government funding money for science. One of the things that's just been exciting over the last couple of years is the incredible amount of investor interest in fusion and the realization among private investors that fusion is almost certainly going to have to be a solution to our energy future. I mean, everybody understands uh, that we're going to need something like 50 trillion watts of, of power by 2050, and that is just not going to be possible with the traditional renewables, wind, solar, hydro, hydro. We're going to need a different source, and investors understand this. So to date, 
there's been something like, and the number changes all the time, but there's been something like $4 billion of private investment money that has gone into the various fusion companies. Commonwealth Fusion, who are one of the leaders in this field, have raised up to $1.8 billion. Um, this is a very exciting development. So the investor interest to make this work is there. I will say, though, we do have huge challenges because to get fusion to work, as I mentioned earlier, we have to build big machines. And big machines means multi-billion dollar machines. The laser that we're talking about and planning to build and designing right now is approximately a $3 billion piece of hardware. So how do we get there? Well, the answer probably is going to be partnerships between the public and private sector. And we're seeing this happen. In fact, the U.S. has been very forward-looking. The U.S. Congress has been very Mm -hmm. forward-looking. It's been amazing. A number of members, actually both Republicans and Democrats, have have seen this and have supported um, funding at the Department of Energy to fund public-private partnerships in fusion energy research. And so I think what you're going to see over the course of the remaining part of the decade is going to be significant investments through the public sector – in partnership, basically leveraging investment money and to the tune of billions, because that's what we're going to need to build these big tokamaks and these big lasers and these big machines to build a a, a pilot power plant. I I think that's going to happen. There's, there's There's the interest and will in the government, at least in the U.S., and I think we're seeing this also in Europe, starting to grow, uh, combined with the already existing investor interest. I think it's going to make that happen. And so, you know, I'm very excited. I, I tell people, if you asked me 10 years ago, you know, would you start a fusion startup company? I would have said, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You know, please go away. Well, it's not a dumb idea anymore. The technology is there. The investment money is there. The, you know, the government support is now growing to be there. Um, it's a pretty exciting time. Yeah, I agree. So, Todd, we are uh, in conclusion. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having you in this uh, Power Up podcast and share with us uh, a lot of information about fusion. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Mauricio. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Todd. So the fusion of two atoms powers our sun and the stars of the universe. Engineers and scientists have been working for decades to achieve controlled fusion on Earth to run a power plant using magnets and lasers to create the necessary conditions. Because nuclear fusion wouldn't produce harmful, long-lived radioactive waste or the greenhouse gases that drive climate change, it would be a good source of energy. A nanosecond long pulse from a laser, similar to National Ignition Facility, is used to compress the deuterium-tritium fuel in the focused energy method for inertial fusion energy. A picosecond beam from a second petawatt laser would then strike a thin one micron thick spherical foil, igniting the compressed fuel much like the spark plug in a gasoline engine. Ballistically, focusing the energy on the fuel, the protons would accelerate. The inventors think that the high-intensity femtosecond to picosecond pulses of these petawatt lasers will enable them to outperform national ignition facility to start fusion processes that produce many times the energy required to start them. As Todd said, Our company's principal goal is to build, by the end of the decade, the laser which both compresses and produces, so the petawatt beams to produce protons in our case. He said, it's going to be putting together in one machine to produce the proton spark plug, the proton fast ignition. 
focused energy path to laser fusion also creates the opportunity to develop near-term laser-driven radiation sources to solve critical inspection problems in several infrastructures. Todd said the technology is there, the investment money is there, that the government support is now growing to be there. It's a pretty exciting time, as Todd concluded. That brings us to the end of this episode. Stay tuned with more news and technical aspects about power electronics. If you are listening to this on the podcast page at etimes.com or powerelectronicsnews.com, links to articles on topics we have discussed are shown in this page. Power Up is brought to you by Aspencore Media. The host is Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio and the producer is James Eid. Thank you everyone for listening. See you next episode. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.